January 1st, 2017. Man, a new year. I don't know if you guys are um, New Year's resolution people. You know, some people think they're stupid because we never keep them, and some people think they're awesome. I, I tend to be a New Year's resolution kind of person. I'm not a guy who would ever start my diet on a Saturday. My diet would always start on a Monday because I'm going to have some cookies and stuff on the weekend. That's not really an excellent uh, Christian witness with regard to uh, New Year's resolutions, but it gives you kind of a, an inflection point. It gives you kind of a, a moment to shoot for and say, okay, I don't know, but I'm having a plan, and I'm going to kick that thing off at the beginning of the new year. And it's a good, good time to take an inventory, to take a look at, in this case, our Christian lives. You know, Do, do our lives reflect Christ? in the way that, you know, my shaken Bible would indicate that our lives should reflect Christ. Or don't they? There's always, always going to be room for more Christ-likeness in our lives. So for me, days like New Year's is a great time for me to take an inventory of myself, compare it to the way that the Bible would teach me, and then hopefully close up any gaps that I find as the Lord reveals them to me. And that's what I think today's um, talk is about for all of us. And if I say you, I'm saying we. Just understand, uh, I have a number of things that I feel the Lord pressing on me about personally um, with regard to gaps between what the Bible teaches and where my life is at that I have the opportunity to bring together. Never this way, right? The the Word of God never finds its way to my... um, compromise. My compromise has always got to be working towards perfect reflection of Jesus Christ and the way he lived his life. So, so it's kind of an opportunity to push the reset button. If you're, if you're a techie kind of person, you push the reset button, the thing starts all over again, and you're fresh, and you're, you're kind of rebooted would be the word. And that's, that's what today's message is about. It's, it's taking a look at some scriptures, and, and it's interesting I almost want to tell the testimony first, but I'm not. I'm going to tell it last. But the the testimony was almost like the opportunity for the Lord for me to see myself because I tend to lean towards the the scriptures. I don't wrestle with the love of God too much. I mean, it's the, all I need to do is think about the cross, and the love of God is not a problem for me to to receive. Now, I don't know that I receive it in its absolute fullness. I pray that I will, but I don't struggle so much with that. But but I see lots of compromise, you know, even in myself and and in the church. And, and I tend to be very focused towards the areas of compromise without being quite as focused towards the love of God. And that's, that's the awakening that I had this morning from the testimony. So anyway, let's start here. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22 and 24, or 22 through 24. And then I'll read you Romans 12, 1 and 2. <coughs> Excuse me. My New American Standard tries to be as, as close to how how the Greek is represented from Paul, which I don't think they use uh, periods or sentences. The sentences are so long. So this one's going to start a little bit in the middle of a sentence, but you'll get the context of it. That in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. And then Romans 12, 1 and 2, therefore, therefore is because uh, for all things are to him and through him and for him. 
Jesus. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. That's what we're going to do this morning. That's what we should be doing all the time as we, as we immerse ourselves into the word of God. We're going to be um, no longer connected to the old man, but we're going to be renewed in the spirit of our mind. What spirit is the spirit that's going to drive our thoughts? Is the enemy, the, the spirit of this world, going to drive our thoughts, or will we be renewed in the spiritual voice of our mind and let that spirit be the Holy Spirit that we listen to and we obey? We're going to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. When you think about repentance, repentance is literally, um, this example came to my mind the other day. Uh, somebody comes up to me and for some reason, you know, they slap me on my cheek. And, and my response is to slap them back on their cheek. And, and whichever one of us can slap harder is going to get the last slap in and, and going to win that little exchange. It makes sense to me. If someone's going to hit me, I want to hit them back so that they'll stop hitting me. But the scripture says to a Christian, if somebody puts a shot on your right cheek, off from your left cheek, don't hit them back. doesn't make any sense in the world. So as we are transformed by the renewing of our mind, what happens is as we immerse ourselves into the scriptures, as the Holy Spirit begins to work inside of us, what happens is we don't think the way we thought before. So repentance begins with a changing of the way you think, and then it, it's followed by a changing in the way you behave. Okay, so, so repentance that's just, okay, I, I can't hit them back because the Bible says I can't hit them back. Come on, hit me again. That's not repentance. That's just like gritting your teeth and fighting your way through what God told you to do. Repentance is when you allow the Holy Spirit to show you and you understand that taking a shot on both cheeks is better than returning a shot. That's true repentance because transformation is happening. So the way that we're changed is by the renewing of our mind. And that transformation is the word, the Greek word meta, metamorph, <laughs> sounds so funny, metamorpho, which is the word we get metamorphosis from. So what's happening is literally we're going from a caterpillar to a butterfly. If you showed somebody that didn't understand, had never seen a caterpillar or a butterfly, and you said, this was that, they'd say, there's no way. That's just like a worm-looking thing, and that's a butterfly. They say, no, no, there's such a transformation that happens that you would never recognize that this butterfly came from that caterpillar, but it did. That's the implication of that scripture for us, is that the transformation would be so dramatic that we would be no longer a little crawly thing, but this beautiful butterfly as we're changed transformed by the renewing of our minds. That's the foundation of what we're going to do today. Let's start with um, faith. Sometimes faith is tough, right? I mean, the Bible says this, but experience says that. And it's so easy to succumb to experience because faith is very challenging to us. When the Bible says, you know, ask whatever, or tell this mountain to move and it's going to move, and we scream at the mountain and it doesn't move, then faith becomes what we put in the place of the moved mountain until the mountain actually moves. It's very difficult, faith. And in um, uh, Luke chapter 18, verse 8, the, the back half of verse 8 says, however, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? See, Jesus is coming back to find a just beautiful church that says, I don't care what experience tells me. My King Jesus says this, and this is what I believe. This is where I believe. This is where I stand. This is true. Well, you're an idiot. I hit you on the face, and you didn't hit me back. 
Maybe to you I'm an idiot, but I know that the Lord is going to use that to bring about his will and maybe even your soul into his kingdom, right? Will he find faith? Well, right now I think he'll find some faith. I mean, and there's some people that he'll find amazing faith, but generally in the church, we've kind of migrated away from what does the Bible say and kind of hung our hat where faith is easy, right? It's easy to, to have, it's not easy. It, it requires the anointing of God, but, but it's kind of easy to believe for your salvation because you don't have to actually see anything, Right? But we're praying for Natalie to get new hands and new skin. Like, like she never fell into the fire when she was little. Right now, the substance of her new skin and her new hands is our faith until the Lord responds in his power and he actually gives her that which we're asking for. Same with uh, Ashley's ear. These are big things. It's hard. It's hard to pray into things that you don't see because experience wants to trump faith. But Jesus said, when I come back, am I going to find people, whether Natalie's got new hands or not, are they going to be standing in faith, believing their God for such a miracle, for such a little one that he loves so much? Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now, faith is the assurance or substance of things hoped for, the conviction or the evidence. I'm mixing my New American Standard and King James because I really like the King James words better. Now, faith is the assurance or the substance of things hoped for, the conviction or the evidence of things not seen. You look at at Natalie today, unless we missed it, right? I don't know if you checked Natalie before you came to church, but she might not have new hands yet. So what are her new, what's the substance of her new hands? It's our faith, her new skin. It's our faith. We're standing in faith, believing that the Lord is going to respond to those prayers. And then if you go just a little further in chapter 11, verse six says, and without faith, is it, is it? Without faith, it is impossible to please him, God, For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. So without faith, there is no pleasing God. He doesn't reward double-mindedness, right? James told us that. So when we pray for Natalie or we pray for whatever seems impossible in the natural, God is up there. Whether he's responded to it or we understand why it hasn't been responded to it or we just we believe that it has and we're just standing in faith until it manifests, no matter what any of that thought process is, if we were sincere in our prayer, God is in heaven with a huge smile on his face because his people stood in faith and that pleases him. Think about this, when you, when you consider yourself and your relationship or when we consider ourselves and our relationship to Jesus and, and our salvation and what does it look like, what is our perspective in that relationship? Here's the next little one for you to think about. 1 Corinthians six nineteen and 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God and that you are not your own for you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. So on a day-to-day basis, as you're making these decisions, remember I talked about worship being when, when we would surrender ourselves, when we humble ourselves before God, and our flesh has to say, be screaming as loud as it wants, but we're not going to respond to it, that we are going to respond in the way that God asks us to respond, that's worship. And, and that would be a good indication that we understand that we're not our own, right? If I'm my own, I'll make my own decisions. But if I understand that I sold myself, for his salvation, there was a price. Pla- <laughs> there was a price paid for my salvation. I didn't pay it, but I've sold myself unto that. I was redeemed by that. So, 
Is my perspective day in and day out, moment in and moment out, that I'm not my own, that I was purchased with a price? If it's not, it should be. Today's the day to push the reset button. If you think that your life is your own, you need to repent from that. You need to be transformed in the way that you think. Your mind needs to be renewed in that area. Romans 14, 7, and 8. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one of us dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. I am the Lord's. I have to remind myself of that all the time. When I'm praying, I just remind myself. I say, Lord, I don't, I don't have a life. I'm a dead guy. I have no life outside of Jesus Christ. I died his death. I get to rise in his resurrection. If I don't die in his death, I don't get to rise in his resurrection. I choose to rise in his resurrection. Therefore, I must conform to his death. That's just how it is. Whether we live or whether we die, we're the Lord's. We're bought with a price. Think about this one, Romans 6, 11. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. I was sharing the gospel with Ashley a couple days ago, and um, we were talking about what that looks like. And I said, imagine there's a, there's a dead person laying right, right here on the floor, they don't stinketh yet, but they're just dead, right? And, and, I, and I represent sin, and I say to that dead person, hey, you, get up and make me a sandwich. I'm hungry. Hey, what's the dead person do? They don't do anything because they're dead, right? You tell a dead person to do anything, they, don't, they can't. They can't respond because they're dead. They have no ability and that's how we're supposed to see ourselves. When sin comes knocking at our door, it's like he's talking to a dead guy. Hey, Pat, how about a little pornography today? I can see your lips moving, but I don't hear your voice. Maybe you should stir me a little bit. No, why? Because I'm a dead guy. When sin comes and, and knocks at my door, there's no answer. Because a dead guy can't turn the doorknob. A dead guy can't get out of the chair. A dead guy can't pull open the door because he's dead. Consider yourselves dead to sin. So if ever sin comes knocking at your door, and he's sneaky, right? The devil doesn't come to your door and say, hey, excuse me, Pat, but um, I'd really like to destroy your life and ruin your relationship with Jesus. Would you mind just doing what I say? It'd be easy to say no to that, right? He doesn't come that way. He comes with a little bit of rationalization, a little tiny little flavor of truth, and then he tries to get you thinking about things. Do you really think that God doesn't want you to eat that nice fruit in the middle of the garden? That, that looks like the best fruit. Don't you think God would like you to have the best fruit? That's some tasty looking fruit. Yeah, well, God loves me. Maybe he, no, he said, if I eat that fruit, I'll die. I don't hear your voice because I'm dead to you. If we entertain that voice at all, then we need to remember that we are dead to that voice. Push the reset button on that one. Along those same lines, Hebrews 12, 14, pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Here's what sanctification means. If you think about all these guys, these are a bunch of guys, and they're just in the world. They're just guys, and they're having fun. They're doing the things that you do in the world. And then this guy right here, he meets Jesus. He confesses Jesus as Lord over his life. And he believes, he trusts that Jesus was the full payment for his sin debt to God. He gets sanctified, set apart, separated. Under, yeah, right. <laughs> oh, 
<laughs> if I knew how I would, that would have been such a good... Huh? Come on. You know, if I had just a little more depth, that's so good. <laughs> you are the light of the world. City on a hill. Nobody lights a lamp to put a basket over it. Hide it under the bed. No, sir. This guy has been illuminated and sanctified. You need to see yourself as sanctified, as separate from the world, not a light in the world, part of the world. You've got to live in the world. Paul said, listen, you don't judge the world. The world's already judged. Inside the church, you judge because we're all supposed to be walking out this sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. So as, as you get sanctified, you're positionally sanctified when your light comes on, you become practically sanctified as the Lord works and delivers you out of all the things that these guys think are just fine, but now you know they're not anymore. Amen? It's important to understand that this was a real deal because he says, without this sanctification, without this holiness working in your life, you won't see the Lord. That's, that's akin to all these scriptures that say, the one that practices this and this and this will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. All that junk does not. The people that practice that kind of stuff don't inherit the kingdom of heaven. The one who inherits the kingdom of heaven is the one who is sanctified, set apart from all that junk. Amen? All right, now don't take this as any kind of like, you know, someday I'm going to preach and you can lose your salvation, but that ain't it. <laughs> okay, guys, you just be over here, though, because you sanctified. All right. First Peter 1, 14 through 19. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. See, there's this positional holiness that you're, you're seen as holy and righteous before God when you're in Jesus Christ. That holiness isn't this holiness. This one speaks to your behavior. This is the practical righteousness we've been talking about from 1 John. This is practicing holiness. Practicing is what you say yes to and what you say no to. That you shall be holy for I am holy. Let me get backwards. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior because it is written, you shall be holy for I, God, am holy. If you address as Father, capital F, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. So when, when that scripture before, I think it was in 1 Corinthians, says you were bought with a price, this is the price you were bought with. Not, it's interesting, he talks about perishable things. He didn't say concrete or, or a, a, you know, wood. He used the most valuable things that people would recognize and said, but it's not that that bought you. It's not silver, it's not gold. It's the blood of a spotless and perfect lamb because that lamb was spotless and perfect it should never have needed to shed its blood right there was no issue of sin in that lamb so there was no issue of condemnation or judgment or punishment in that lamb but that lamb shed its precious blood so that we could put on that lamb's righteousness before god so if you're going to call him father live your life in such a way of fear and reverence that your purchase didn't come from something as cheap as gold but the blood, the precious and spotless, perfect blood of the Lamb of God. 
you're not going to think I clipped any scriptures out of this next part, but I actually did. This, this, this theme of gaining and losing your life, maybe more, but I found it five times in the Gospels. It's literally twice in the Gospel of Matthew. It's twice in the Gospel of Luke. And it's once in the Gospel of John. Now, Mark's gospel is the shortest, so maybe he, he wanted to be brief, and he clipped a couple things out. He said, okay, all you guys have it in there a couple times. I'll leave it out of mine. I don't know. But it's a huge concept for us to understand as we think about what does it mean to be Christian and what is the expectation of God over his body. All right, so start in Matthew ten thirty four through 39. Do not think that I came, this is Jesus speaking, do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. So all that stuff in the middle is tough, but the stuff at the beginning at the end is what I want to focus on. Jesus himself said, hey, listen, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. A sword separates, right? If you put your arm out here and you whack it with a sword, what it's going to do, is not going to bring any peace to that arm. It's going to separate it, right? Jesus, I think in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, if your eye causes you to sin, dig it out. Better that you go into heaven blind in one eye then you don't go into heaven at all. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. That's the message that Jesus is saying here. You have to understand that your call to holiness, to sanctification, to be like Jesus is so big that he didn't come to bring peace. He is the Prince of Peace, and you will find peace in Christ Jesus. But he came with a sword to separate. And if it means even the most dear things in your life would keep you from Jesus, then that sword is there to to make you make a decision between him and and between those things of the world. Matthew 16, 24 through 26. Then Jesus said to his disciples, and I'm reaching more than one of these because they all see see this this thing from a different perspective. Um, 16, 24 through 26. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? So Jesus is saying, listen, you don't have a life anymore. And if you try to hold on to this life, then you can't have that life. He who thinks he's found his life, ultimately, when you pass from this one to the next, you're going to find out that you lost life. The one who denies this life, this life that looks like I answer my flesh, I answer my own will, you get to have it, but you don't get to have that one. That's what he's trying to say to us here. And ultimately, it's like you preach the gospel to somebody, and, <clears throat> and they come into an, uh, some sense of understanding, and they say, I don't think so. That tells me they don't have an understanding. They don't recognize the wrath of God, what their eternal destination looks like, because no one would trade his soul for this world for maybe a 100 years if you live a long time and spend eternity in a lake of burning sulfur fire. You just wouldn't do it. 
Okay, Luke 17, 32 through 33. And I've got one or two scriptures that you're not going to have up there at the computer, so don't worry about it. I will read them. Um, This one is cool. It's Jesus speaking again. He says, remember Lot's wife. Now, Lot is uh, Abraham from the, from the Old Testament. Abraham's nephew is Lot, and, and, and Lot had a wife. And Jesus is saying, remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. So I thought, I want to remember Lot's wife. I mean, I know the story, but I thought I'd go back and take a look at the story. I'm going to read it to you about Lot's wife. It starts in Sodom and Gomorrah. You're probably familiar with Sodom and Gomorrah. It's this horrible, sinful place, right? Genesis 19, verses 12 through 26. Now, this is God sent angels to get Lot out of Sodom and Gomorrah, a righteous man out of Sodom and Gomorrah before he rained down fire and brimstone and just completely destroyed it for its sin. There's a picture in there for us. Okay, so these two angels are speaking to Lot. Then the two men, which are the angels, said to Lot, Whom else have you here? A son-in-law and your sons and your daughters and whomever you have in the city, bring them out of this place. James 4.4 says, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. See, Lot couldn't be okay in Sodom and Gomorrah, right? He can't be friends with the world. We can't be friends with the world. When we decide that we're going to have friendship with the world, we are being enemies towards God. So God wasn't going to save Lot if Lot wasn't going to come out of the world, which is represented by Sodom and Gomorrah. You've got to come out. Get what's important to you, your daughters, your wife, sons-in-laws, whatever. Get them out of here because this thing ain't going to make it. And that's what's going to happen to this world. At the end of time, this world is done. God's not going to fix it. He's going to destroy it with fire. It's going to cease to exist. And all those who have responded to his offer of salvation in his son will spend eternity with him in what he calls the new heaven and the new earth, the new Jerusalem being its capital. So it's not like you can stay and hope that that somehow Sodom and Gomorrah are going to get fixed. It doesn't get fixed. It gets destroyed. It, It ceases to exist. And that's what the angels are trying to tell Lot. Listen, you need to go and you need to go now. For we were about to destroy this place because their outcry has become so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters and said, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy the city. But he appeared to his sons-in-law as to be jesting. Somebody says, Hey, listen, you can't keep this life and have that life. You can't walk in sin and nastiness and be saved. And you say, oh, come on, you're just jesting. God loves me. See, his son-in-laws, they didn't think he was serious. They didn't believe that God was going to actually come and destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, except he was. Guess what? His son-in-laws, sons-in-laws, some of you wish your sons-in-laws maybe stayed in Sodom and Gomorrah too. I don't know. The point is, when the Bible speaks to you, you can't call it jesting. You can't think, oh, yeah, but this will trump that, and I won't have a problem with this because of this. You need to see that when God speaks, he means what he says. When he says, walk through your time on this earth with a fear of God, then we need to walk through our time on this earth with a fear of God. That's okay. This is church on the street. Do you understand? I mean, can you see the parallel to the message in, 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 in our salvation? It's like you can't stay there. Ah, you're joking. He wouldn't really do that. God's not going to do that. How about the Lord, Lord guys in Matthew chapter 7? What do you mean? Away from me. 
We did miracles in your name. We cast out devils in your name. We prophesied in your name. We were church guys. Yeah, I don't know you. You're you're doers of iniquity. Get away from me. That's Lot's sons-in-law. Sons-in-law. Verse 15. When morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away in the punishment of this city. God's not going to spare you in that sinful place. But he hesitated. So the men seized his hand and the hand of his wife and the hands of his two daughters for the compassion of the Lord was upon him and they brought him out and put him outside the city. See, God's compassion saved him because he chose to go somewhere else. Even if he needed help, right? Maybe God sends the angels to help us too. But literally he had to get out of Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 17 When they had brought them outside, one said, escape for your life. This is the angel speaking. Do not look behind you and do not stay anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains or you will be swept away. But Lot said to them, oh, no, my lords. Now behold, your servant has found favor in your sight and you have magnified your loving kindness, which you have shown me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains for the disaster will overtake me and I will die. Now behold, this town is near enough to flee to and it is small. Please let me escape there. Is it not small that my life may be saved? He said to him, behold, I grant you this request also not to overthrow the town of which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the town was called Zoar. The sun had risen over the earth and Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained down on Sodom and Gomorrah, brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley, and all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground. But his wife from behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. Remember what Jesus said in in Luke chapter 17? Remember Lot's wife? Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. That's her story. See, we can't have affection for our old life. If we're truly saved, then we've died. And we've been resurrected, born again. And any time that our flesh wants to look back and ponder and consider that life, it's an opportunity for death, big death. And that's the message that he's trying to show us by remembering Lot's wife. She might have had some affection for Sodom and Gomorrah, but they told him, don't even look back. Don't do anything to keep yourself back in that. And she did, and she was turned into a pillar of salt. It's what she was thinking in her heart. Yep, there wasn't, there wasn't a sincere repentance, maybe. I don't know. No separation. no separation. She looked back. And there's a, you know, it's funny. I had the scripture in my head, but I thought it's too much. I didn't go look for it. But there's, there's a scripture that Jesus speaks as a parable that says, no one after putting his hand to the plow and turns back is worthy, right? So he's saying the same thing in the New Testament that he's saying here by remembering Lot's wife. The last one here is John twelve twenty four through 25. Jesus again speaking, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. So we we have to understand that Jesus, five times at least, right? That's the five that I found. Maybe there's more, but five should be enough. One should be enough. Five times, he says, if you try to keep this life, the one that Lot's wife looked back at, the, the one that wants to be friends with the world and enjoy the things that the world enjoys, the one who doesn't want to be sanctified and set apart from the world, 
once their little light is turned on. They can have that life, but they can't have that life, right? That's what he's trying to tell us over and over and over again. The one who separates himself will be fruitful. Read John 15. He talks about bearing fruit. I am the vine. Jesus is the vine, and you are the branches. I'm the tree trunk, and you're the branches. And and the branches that bear fruit, my father, who's the vine dresser, he prunes them. Why? So that there's little things that aren't quite like Jesus. He prunes them so that they bear more fruit. But the branch that bears no fruit cuts it off, throws it in the fire. Fruitfulness is part of being born again. To be a Christian is to be fruitful. To be unfruitful is to be cut off from the vine that's Jesus. You can't produce any fruit, Jesus says, unless that you abide in me. Where does fruitfulness begin? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. See, when that seed, you could take a seed, and you could stick it in a jar, you could put it in a drawer, you could put it in your pocket, and, and if you lived 100 more years, you could open that drawer and find that seed, and it's still a seed. Nothing's happened. But when that seed dies, when it goes into the ground, something happens, and, and, and God does something, and it becomes a plant, and the plant grows, and it starts to produce fruit but it never produces fruit until it dies, till it ceases to become a seed. It can't produce any fruit. See, unless we choose to die, being born again isn't like, now I'm two me's, right? I have my old me, and I have my new me, and we get to go, you know, we're somehow connected, and we get to go to heaven. No, no, no. To be born again requires this me, goes into the ground and dies, and then what comes up bears fruit. Amen? Okay, I don't think I could kick that horse any harder. He ain't getting up. Okay, so as you and I take perspective, as we step back from ourselves, as we look at the scriptures and we look at our lives, what are we seeing? We're seeing that we're not like this, um, or we can't be like this. You know, somebody is presented, hey, you know, on the street corner, you know, you know you're a sinner and you're going to go to hell. Oh, no, I don't want to go to hell. Well, let me tell you about Jesus. Okay, let me think for just a minute. Man, my job is busy. I probably got 50 hours a week, and my wife, you know, she really likes me to do this, and I coach my kids' soccer team, but that's on Saturdays. And when church is on Sunday mornings? Yeah, yeah, Sunday mornings, 1030 till, you know, sometime. We never know when. 1030. You know what? I think I, I, think I got a place for that. That's not Christianity. It becomes this. I've died to myself. Should God will, I'll still do my job and I'll still coach the team or whatever. But you don't add Jesus to your life. Jesus becomes your life. That's the perspective that we need to have. When, when we, we have some thought about something, the Bible says, you know, you guys, you're so arrogant. You say, I'm going to go here and then I'm going to go there and I'm going to make a little money. No, no, no. You should say, if the Lord wills, I'll do this or I'll do that because I don't have a life. I'm owned by him. I'm now about set apart not for the purposes of the world, but for the purposes of the Lord, right? Gabe's been sanctified. He's been set apart from the rest of us for the purposes of the U.S. Marine Corps, for their purposes is what he's going to do. If they say it's time to go get in a fight, he's going to go get in a fight because he's set apart and he understands it. That's his new religion. I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't give up his Christianity, but that's a great picture of what's happening in a person's life when they get saved. They've become set apart for God. Don't add Jesus to our life. 
Jesus becomes our life. That's the perspective. That may not be the truth when you first get saved. It may not be the truth when you pass from this life to the next, but it ought to be the growing truth in your life as you walk with the Lord. Christianity and Sodom and Gomorrah don't mix. You make a decision and you don't look back. That's the perspective we need to have. Holiness and sanctification are not options to those of us that desire eternal life. We can't choose. We can't say God's grace gives us a license. That's, what's the guy at the end? Is it Titus? Jude. It's the book of Jude. He says, listen, these, these guys have snuck in among you, and they're saying that, that grace of our God allows licentiousness. Because of his grace, you can just do this or you can do that. He said, don't be deceived by those guys. Holiness and sanctification, they're almost like two words that almost perfectly overlap each other, are requirements of Christianity. They're not things that you do because you want to. They're things that you do because you're a Christian. They're not optional things. Like, ah, you know, I, I think I'm going to keep this, and I'll do this part over here that's Christian, but this part I really like. That's not Christianity. Without sanctification, holiness, nobody gets to see God. When sin calls, what's your response? I'm a dead guy. You can kick me, you can prod me, you can scream at me, you can demand that I do certain things, but your voice is gone. I don't hear your voice. Your lips might be moving, but I'm not responding to you because I am dead to you. You have no control. When God speaks, I jump to attention because he's my king. I'm a slave of righteousness. I'm not a slave of sin anymore. We have to decide which life we choose. It's not either or. It's not some of both. It's not adding Jesus to my life. The choice, without regard to what the practice looks like, the practice over time is going to change to look more and more and more like Jesus. But the choice has to be 100% for Jesus, that that old stuff isn't part of my life anymore. And this is one of the favorite quotes we've ever heard from Heidi Baker. We got to spend the better part of a whole summer in her ministry, much of it under her teaching. And if there's one thing that she said over and over again, she said, faithfulness flows from intimacy. So (laughs) for any of you that have been at church on the street, like since the very beginning, Many people have come to me over and over again, and, and they've said, you, you, you sound wishy-washy. Like, this is what I believe. But it, and I, and I might, maybe was a little bit. I wasn't, I wasn't, like, double-minded in my convictions, but I don't know if it was the devil or it was just immaturity, but I always thought to myself, if, you know, if a church guy, you know, a, a TV pastor or an Internet guy or some famous pastor says this, but I see this in the Word of God, who am I? Who, who am I to like, I'm just Pat Brady. I didn't go to seminary, you know. I didn't even, didn't even go to college, but one year. And I was very much unconfident. Now, I've been reading my Bible faithfully. I'm talking like every single day for, is it 14, 15 years now. And I mean every day. And I'm gaining confidence, you know. So, <laughs> Not, my new fear is arrogance. I, I called Pastor Jim. I'm like, you, I need somebody regularly to sit with me. To, to, to when I see something as truth and I'm getting ready to teach it, somebody who's deeper than me that will listen to what I say 
investigate the scriptures with me and tell me if I'm all wet or I'm okay. And he provided this guy for me. Now it's been three or four weeks. I mean, last this Friday was only two hours because I had something at 11 o'clock I had to do. The other Fridays have been four hours each time. And my point is that my confidence, which I, I pray to God will never turn into arrogance. Like, you know, I know and you don't, and this is my opinion, so you have to be wrong. I, I don't want to lose that smart people might disagree with me. I want to be humble and listen. That's why I've asked to have somebody in my life that's paying attention to how I think in the word. But I think the confidence has come from the faithfulness that comes from intimacy. And, and there are things in the scripture, the Lord was speaking to me about participating in Jesus's suffering earlier this week. There's no way to do that outside of intimacy. And there is a fruitfulness that comes from participating in his suffering. There's a, there's a, there's a knowledge of God. There's an awareness of his glory that doesn't come outside of participating in his suffering. And what he was trying to show me is that, that if you want everything, then you've got you to gotta be willing to stand at every angle to see God, right? You know the story about the three blind guys that were you know, trying to tell you what an elephant looks like, and one's got him by the nose, and another one's got him by the tail, and another one's got him by the leg, and they're arguing about what an elephant looks like. Well, all they know is what a little piece of an elephant looks like. They don't realize because they're blind that they're not seeing the fullness of the elephant, and they're each right to the part that they see. But if you want to see God in as full as is possible for a Christian to see God, then you have to be intimate with him. You have to be intimate first before anything else with his word. You have to be willing to sit down and sacrifice whatever of you know, this life is keeping you from knowing him. If it's television, if it's I don't understand it, if it's who cares, it makes me sleepy, it doesn't matter. You have to be intimate with Jesus. That's worship. Oh my gosh, worship was so awesome. Here it was. But my personal worship this morning had me in tears. It was so beautiful. It's prayer. It's seeking to learn to recognize that still small voice. And it's having his word so steeped inside of you that every response out of you comes from knowing his character that's revealed in his word. All fruitfulness flows from intimacy. I thought this was the last scripture I was going to read for you. Revelation 3, 19 and 20, but it turns out it's not. Uh, Revelation 3, 19 and 20. Those whom I love, Jesus speaking again, I reprove and discipline. See, he's speaking to the church at Laodicea. This is, the, I think, the seventh of the seven letters to the churches. Every one of them, you know, he speaks to them. I think there's one church, maybe two, that doesn't get any rebuke at all. But every one of them is told to persevere to the end, right? So this is the closing of his conversation with the church at Laodicea. And the Laodicean church is the church that I see in the West today. You think that you're rich and, and prosperous and you have need of nothing, but, but you're not. You're poor, you're wretched, you're naked, you're blind. See, we think, you know, not we, the other churches, but, you know, them, us, we think that, wow, you know, God loves us because look at how comfortable we are. And we have nice things. And, you know, he must be mad at the church in Africa because they're starving over there and they got these problems and what. That's not the case at all. That's not how God measures wealth. 
So he's, he's trying to get the Laodicean church to recognize their true situation. Here's how he closes his letter to them. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous. Remember at the beginning, you're lukewarm. You're neither hot nor cold. I'm going to just spit your nasty lukewarmness out of my mouth. Whew. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. But remember this, Jesus doesn't go in through the door that on the other side is Sodom and Gomorrah. What does John say in 1 John? If we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of his son cleanses us from all unrighteousness. See, Jesus is standing outside the door of the Laodicean church. But unless that they change, they repent and be zealous, he's not coming in. He's not coming in just because they say come in. The door that Jesus enters through is repentance. And that's the message that he's telling to that church. So that's the way we need to see any kind of area of our life that Jesus doesn't want to come into because it it represents Sodom and Gomorrah. It might not be our whole life, but as we become aware of parts of our lives that are not set apart and sanctified unto the Lord, Jesus is standing at the door and he's knocking. But the way the door opens is with repentance. It's, It's with the recognition of my way is wrong and your way is right Help me, Lord, grant me. And I think it's in the book of Acts. It says that that if God would grant you repentance, God, grant me repentance, that I might repent in this area of my life, that you might come in and dine with me here too. Now, this is the part that I've been waiting for. I'm sitting in my chair uh, this morning. I'm having a wonderful time with the Lord. and, And I'm thinking about having an altar call, which that's not, you know, first front front thoughts for me. I'm a terrible altar call guy. And Margie had sent me the song list. Not, typically she doesn't, but she did like a, a week or so ago. And I'm, I'm worshiping into the songs in Marcy, or Margie's thing. And I'm, I'm worshiping and I'm just bringing tears to my eyes. Oh, this is so beautiful. I can't hear anything. I have big headphones on that cover my ears. They're sound deadening. So the outside world's not supposed to be able to get in, but something caused me to turn my head. And I turn my head to the left, and as I turn my head to the left, my daughter Tanya walks, there's a doorway. She walks through the doorway. And as I see her, she's, she looks beautiful. But her skirt's about this long, and the top of her skirt is here, and, the, and her shirt only comes down to there. And I had this thought, I'm like, oh, man, that's really not... Excellent clothes for her to wear to church. Before I had a chance to call her, which I'm not sure I would have anyway, before I had a chance to call her, the Lord said to me, I mean, he's so beautiful. He said, I work on the in, from the inside out. And, and, and Tanya wouldn't wear a skirt. She would only wear pants because she didn't see herself. Um, forgive me, honey, but she gave me permission, which is another awesome testimony to the Lord because she didn't see herself as ever being able to be pretty. And now she's confident to wear not pants and feel pretty, nice. He said, I work from the inside out. And, and he's, if you know Tanya, he is. I mean, her, her inside is so beautiful, but some on the outside, she doesn't have that revelation yet so much. And then um, the next thing that popped into my head was he reminded me of a story my daughter-in-law tells. 
never been to church. Her mom is still a new age, you know, her sisters, you know, if she says Jesus, her sister goes crazy. That was their family. I mean, a lot, anyway, she had no concept of Jesus. She's maybe 12 years old. Her friend invites her to come to church with her and her family, right? So Krista walks into church for the first time in her life, 12-year-old girl in Florida. They haven't even had a chance to sit down yet. Two church ladies come over to her and say, excuse me, would you come with us? They walk her over to the side by herself, and they say, young lady, you're dressed like a whore. Don't you ever come back into our church dressed like that again. It is real. It's tragic. She hated church. She hated Jesus. If this is Jesus, they called me a whore. She probably had to ask somebody what that meant. God wanted me to remember. I'm working from the inside out. I'm going to get to that. Just not yet right now to that. And then this morning, she comes to me in church, and she says, Daddy, is my skirt too short? I said, who told you that? She wouldn't tell me. She said, nobody told me. I said, did you overhear somebody? She said, yes. I said, it is too short, and it's just fine. Do you remember some of you that were here when I was in Ukraine with her? You know, before we came home, Teresa got me on the Skype. Right? I don't know if you had a computer or a phone or what you did, but I'm in Ukraine, and I'm talking through the Skype to you guys, and I said, listen, when we get home, she's not likely to dress like you expect the pastor's daughter to dress because she doesn't know Jesus yet. And I'm not going to put that religious crap on her where she's going to hate Jesus before she gets to know him because, because the church people have an expectation of what the pastor's daughter is supposed to look like. So when she shows up, if her shorts are this short, deal with it. If her skirt is this Deal with it. If her blouse comes down to here, deal with it. That's your problem. That's not her problem. Because she don't know Jesus yet. And I don't want her to hate Jesus before she gets a chance to meet him for real through some church lady that would call her a whore because of the way she's dressed. As a, She wasn't 12. She was bigger than 12. And for her to give me permission to share is just so how God is just mending up that heart. It's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. So this is the last scripture now. It's in Ephesians chapter 3. This is Paul praying for the people at Ephesus. It's what we should be praying over ourselves. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. So it's good that you know that you've got to walk in holiness, and it's good that you know that if you want to have this life, you can't have that life. But it's really good that if you understand that his love for you is so incredible that it's going to get you through all those things, and you just trust him. You trust him, and you serve him, and you cry out to him day and night, Lord, make me to be like Jesus. He loves you so much, he's not going to let you stay how you are. And he's going to bring you to that place of holiness and sanctification if you want it. If you don't want it and you mock him, then you're going to reap what you sow. But if you love Jesus, you will come to know his love to such a degree that you will be transformed into his glorious likeness.
And that's the message that should bring us. Come up and play. Would you and John do what you said you would for me? Oh, my goodness. (sighs) So I'm going to make an altar call today. And the altar call today is that as you examine yourself relative to the scriptures, those places that you've been deceived, those places where you've chosen to not listen, any of those places, that place where you've not received God's love for whoever knows whatever the brokenness in your heart might be, that the altar call today is that you come and that you tell the Lord that I want to be how you want me to be. I want to walk the way that you've required that I walk. I want this holiness, this sanctification that's going to allow me to see the Lord. As, uh, the uh, Beatitudes say, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Lord, purify my heart. Cleanse me of all unrighteousness. Please, God, if I have any sins, show me what they are so that I can confess them. I want to walk in the light as you're in the light and have fellowship with you. I want the blood of your son Jesus to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. I thank you for your love. I'm so desirous to understand how deep and how wide it is that I might be filled to the very fullness of God and the knowledge of Jesus' love for me. That's your come to the altar today. It's a repentance call. It's a thank you call. It's a whatever you got from looking at yourself, the way you receive God's love versus the way he gives it, the, the way that you live your life the way, versus the way that he prescribes it, come to the altar. Thank you. Father, I just pray that each and every one of us would meet you at that place where you're calling us right now. And then tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day and every day, Lord, that, that we might truly be the light of the world and that your light would be so evident, not to the world even, but to us that we would understand who we are in you. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Tell the world of the love that you've found. Repentance is such a beautiful thing. I just want to share something with you before we go into the, the, the next song that the Lord um, showed me um, on New Year's Eve. I was writing a letter to Joe. And one of the things that Joe loved to do is he loved to write songs and he would sing his songs. He'd post them on Facebook or YouTube. And, and Joe never considered whether his voice was good or bad or otherwise, because that wasn't the point. The songs that he wrote, he wrote for an audience of one. And so, tell the world of the love that you found. I need you guys all to stand up with me because I'm going to do something really brave here. And I'm going to sing to an audience of one. 
and I'd like you to join with me because I'm not a singer, but I'm singing for an audience of one. So I don't care what you think. <laughs> Sorry, but I don't. I love you, Lord. And I lift my voice to worship you, oh my soul, rejoice, take joy, my King, in what you Sweet, sweet sound in your ear. One more time. I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice to. And as we step into 2017, may we always remember that we, everything we do is to an audience of one. <laughs> 